Hello, I'm Charlie Code, and welcome to the Culture Decoded podcast, a collaboration between Code Associates and Culture 15 intended to highlight the best in thought leadership and effective implementation on the topic of organisational culture. Culture Decoded is a series of interviews where I will ask prominent leaders, cultural practitioners and thinkers from a range of fields to reflect on their personal journeys and that of their organisations, teasing out what matters most. At both Culture 15 and Code Associates, we believe that culture is the key to any organisation achieving its goals and creating sustainable success. And we're committed to sharing ideas, inspiration and hard-won lessons for others to put to use. Whether you're starting a business, leading a team or an organisation, or you're just interested in how organisations succeed or fail, there'll be something here for you. I hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to Culture Decoding Podcast. This episode, we have Chris Jones, current CEO of BMJ, but we will hear a lot more of his background in a moment. Chris, welcome. Good morning. Welcome. Very pleased to have you on the uh, on the podcast. You and I have known each other for a while, and I've tracked your leadership journey and the organisations that you've led over the past few years. Um, and I'm actually really looking forward to unpacking a little bit about that journey and uh, your experiences and learnings along the way, because it has been a little bit of an unfolding, unwrapping process. Uh, so maybe, Chris, if you could start, can you say a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, background and then we'll move on to BMJ and what's up to you today. Sure. So, um, James, I'm currently the Chief Executive of, of BMJ Publishing Group, um, uh, an organisation I joined in April 2020, um, right at the height of, of the, the emerging global pandemic. Um, an organisation that's fundamentally focuses on healthcare um, and improving healthcare outcomes. So uh, I couldn't have thought of an organisation to have been joining at a most relevant time. Um, but prior to, to joining BMJ, um, for the best part of 16 years, please for that, I was chief executive of two education businesses, uh, one, Sydney Hills Group, um, one of the largest vocational educational businesses, um, a charity, um, but also a commercial enterprise as well. Um, and for that, um, a number of different senior roles within Reed Elsevier and Pearson, uh, both here in the UK, um, but also uh, for about four or five years living and working in America. Thank you. There's a number of things in that short intro which uh, I want to pick up on. I, the, you mentioned timing was fantastic going into the COVID pandemic with BMJ, but the timing was all, almost also catastrophically bad, given yes. that you probably accepted your offer of the role in normal times, and you started your role uh, within a week of lockdown. Yeah, the organisation, actually BMJ, had already moved into uh, an entirely virtual work environment, so I actually never spent a day working in the office um, for the first nine, ten months. Um, my first day, and uh, my introduction to my team, was on Zoom call, um, which was probably one of the most challenging environments and situations I've found myself in. Not only trying to introduce myself as a chief executive to this team of people who had not met me in person at all, but also trying to understand not only the emerging impact of COVID on the business, but of course the role that we were going to be playing in the context of COVID. Which, um, which was central. Which was absolutely central. Um, I mean, you know, we're an organisation that publishes 70 to 80 medical and healthcare journals. Um, it's a mix of news, investigative journalism, but also 
uh, one of the sort of preeminent providers of peer-reviewed academic research. Um, and this was a time when the demand for trusted insights into the pandemic, not only the origins, but the implications of the pandemic, were at an all-time high. Um, and so we were central to providing, in many respects, that trusted independent source of knowledge and insight. Um, and for an organisation that is fundamentally for profit, but equally very mission-led, this was a time when mission and purpose, improving health outcomes, supporting clinicians and healthcare professionals at the point of care in the front line was probably at its greatest. And so, you know, we were thrown into this situation having to deal with both the demands of the business and supporting our people, um, but also the demands of our customers, um, which was exponential in terms of growth over a very short period of time. So COVID and managing COVID was multi-dimensional for us, um, beyond just our own individual interests, the interests of our people, but this global audience that came to us looking for perspective and news. Um, and at times, um, occasions where we had to speak truth to power, not only in terms of how governments, in particular, were dealing with the crisis at hand. We are recording this in the middle of the COVID inquiry in the UK, mm. which is exposing what I think everybody suspected at the time, which was a government decision-making machine, if we put it kindly to say that we're struggling to keep up, and perhaps if we're speaking more plainly, plainly you might call chaotic. So that role of a an objective data-driven, clinical view, I think was critical mm, at the time. Yeah. And I remember there were a number of policy-shaping articles and uh, lobbying directions from the BMJ, which were hugely influential in terms of shaping how government responded. Yes. Um, it seemed like a, a sort of sane head amongst uh, a bunch of headless chickens um, in government. I, did you have any uh, close interaction with government at that stage of the pandemic? We didn't directly, no. Um, I mean, obviously through the editorial and journalistic teams, we had you know, a fair degree of access to um, primarily the medical profession, the chief scientific officers and, and the researchers sitting and underpinning sort of the emerging insights in our COVID. Um, our parent, um, which is the British Medical Association, um, was absolutely front and centre because mm -hmm. for them, you know, and their members, uh, GPs, clinicians, doctors, you know, they were clearly very, very focused on the policy, particularly the policy around you know, how to manage lockdown, um, how to manage and support the demands within the hospitals and the GPs and the clinicians themselves, dealing with the issues associated to effectively shifting an entire model to being one that was virtual. And obviously that continues to be a preeminent feature of how sort of, um, we access um, you know, the clinical um, world today. Um, I think we felt at the time our best role was 
twofold. One, how do we make as much information available to healthcare professionals um, as quickly as possible? How do we make that freely available? So one of the things we made very quickly was put the commercial agenda to one side, focus fundamentally around the purpose of the organisation, improving health outcomes, and making sure that we were supporting knowledge, we were supporting um, professional development. So a lot of uh, short learning courses were made available to support GPs and clinicians on the front line dealing with pandemic-related situations. Um, and that was really, therefore, built on supporting almost a, a base of trust, knowledge, and insight. Uh, and through doing that, we're able then to actually sort of build you know, an editorial position that actually allowed us to frame some of the policy-related issues in terms of the challenges that it was going to present to the healthcare profession here and internationally too. Um, but I remember one of the one of the most notable sort of editorial pieces was not far off, I think it was sort of Christmas 2021, you know, where we were saying the country has to go into lockdown. It was a time the government was looking to open the country up again. Desperate to. Uh, desperate, desperate yes. to. And we said it's one of the worst things that you could possibly do. And actually, it was a joint editorial with, with another medical journal that we fundamentally believe shifted the government position mm. at the end towards shutting Christmas down, which I appreciate is not the most popular decision, but one that was fundamentally right at that moment in time. So, you know, we are an organisation that is comfortable with speaking truth to power, and that's a good thing, but we do it on a very well-evidenced, well-researched um, and independent basis. Very interesting. Uh, the Chinese proverb, I think, is may you live in interesting times. Indeed. May you lead in interesting times. You touched a couple of times on the central role that purpose plays for the NJ. Mm. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in more depth in a moment. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about the evolution of the NJ as an organisation. You would have been brought in on a remit um, and then didn't meet your senior team for six, nine, 12 months in person. So I'd be interested to hear at least the outline of what what has your emerging thesis been around BNJ as an organisation? I know it's still work in progress. And where are you at at that journey? And what role is organisational culture playing in that? I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I was brought in very much on a, an agenda of, of, of growth. Um, I mean, BMJ is a, is a fascinating organisation. Um, I mean, the British Medical Journal, our flagship, was first published in 1840, so it has this, this, this incredible heritage. Um, but it's an organisation that today, you know, is, is global in terms of its outlook, it is global in terms of its operation. Um, it's certainly published around about 80 medical and healthcare-related journals, um, some of them in very specialised fields. We provide um, continued professional development to healthcare professionals. Um, we run a number of global events um, and we're increasingly um, involved in digital health. Um, that is fundamental about how we integrate clinical evidence to support clinical professionals make better, more effective decisions at the point of care. Um, so we're an organisation that has some fantastic opportunities open to it. Um, 
when I joined, I, I think my sense of the business was it was a fantastic brand um, in uh, an incredibly interesting sort of market that was undergoing a number of structural changes, both in terms of business model um, and also the impact and evolution of technology and how technology is allowing information to be shared more widely and used in different sort of contexts. But it was also an organisation that, in many respects, I think, had really been underperforming relative to the market opportunity. Um, and some of that, I think, was fundamentally rooted in culture. Um, you know, we were a, a conservative organisation. You know, we, we, we were very careful in terms of setting out any sort of stretch ambition. Um, we were highly discursive. Um, we were probably more relationship orientated, and certainly in terms of how we operated, it was one that oriented it very much to, to harmony. Um, and for me, that meant that there was a need for us to sort of shift the cultural sort of basis of the business, and, and to create an organisation that fundamentally had ambition more rooted, you know, in its heart, um, but one that was more prepared and willing to challenge itself, um, and in doing so, be able to acknowledge what needed to be improved, um, and where we could actually seek to grow and expand the business. Um, and, and that was a very interesting time, because it was a perception I had from process of the interviews from meeting some of the non-execs um, and then of course being thrust into this sort of COVID world um, and trying to understand well how do we now navigate this sort of cultural sort of dimension that we know we have to shift you know in order for the business to really realise its full potential um, and as you say that journey is is very much still an ongoing journey and I think in many respects those journeys never really end you know they just go through different phases yeah absolutely yes. Okay, and, and let's talk a little bit about the, the role purpose plays. Mm. The COVID pandemic provided the ideal opportunity, and, and you've already articulated, for you to grasp hold of the purpose as the guiding light in terms of decision-making priorities. You said you suspended the commercial structure in order to ultimately enable better clinical decision-making want to care during a critical time. So purpose is obviously infused into the organisation. With that degree of alignment and affiliation to a purpose, you often get what you described, which is a sense of uh, collegiality, a high preference towards relationships, mm. resulting in uh, a level of uh, indirect communication, perhaps a lack of decisiveness, all of those cultural characteristics that often come with, and there's often probably many people listening who are involved or have had anything to do with charities would recognise that as quite a common cause-driven organisation. Yeah. What you've described in terms of um, injecting a sense of ambition, creating a growth agenda, whilst not losing that sense of purpose on a mission and being cause-driven, that's involves tensions and is quite a tricky balance in that. So talk a little bit about, and I know we've in the past talked about this 
challenge of uniting purpose and profit. And mm. it's, it's something that a lot of organizations struggle with, whether they're either coming from the position of being previously profit-driven and then introducing a purpose and making it real, or being starting from the other side of the equation, which is the purpose-driven and then introducing a profit motive. And I know organizations struggle with that, yeah. what apparently seems like a sort of binary choice, but often isn't. So yeah. can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think... I, 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 I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's been interesting to see how purpose has become, you know, a term much more widely used, and particularly for organisations that have been entirely driven by shareholder returns and, and profits and share price, you know, suddenly to try to introduce purpose into the mix, you know, and often just because, yes. you know, they are by nature often then defaulting to the quarterly reporting and the expectations of the city or shareholders. Um, BMJ um, is indeed an organisation that I would describe very much as being plural. Um, and what I found interesting was that, that that sense of purpose, that sense of mission, you know, everything that you do is about improving health outcomes, was something that was absolutely rooted into the business. And that was fantastic to see. Um, and there was obviously this recognition that, well, we have to be um, commercially successful, largely because the expectation of our parents, British Medical Association, you know, they, they, they require us to generate a dividend in order to their support their own agenda of providing membership-related services uh, to, to the clinical profession. Um, what I was struck by, and I think it's probably really true of many organisations that talk about purpose, is we haven't really built a framework to fundamentally evidence the impact of that purpose. So, so we talked about improving health outcomes, um, but we didn't really have a framework which we could really refer back to and say, and that's how we really evidence it. So whilst we produce great academic journals with wonderful peer-reviewed research, the question obviously I asked was, and so what? What does that really mean? Um, we have a great learning business. What's the benefit of that? And so one of the things that we spend a lot of time on, um, actually during that first year, was building a very, very clear impact framework for everything that we do. Um, and today we have three core platforms, um, whether it is journals, whether it's events, whether it's our digital business. Everything that we do is orientated around either evidencing um, better evidence, um, and that is in the construct of the quality and the integrity of the research that we publish and understanding where and how that research is then cited and used, and taking that right the way through to ultimate outcomes of demonstrating where that research has actually enabled the health system to change, or whether that research is evidence of changing clinical practice. Um, third platform is around ensuring better decisions. Um, so that could be rooted into the knowledge and skill of a clinician before they undertake an element of learning and then be able to measure how that knowledge and skill has changed for the better having undertaken that learning. Um, and again, we can track that right up through to the quality of decisions that are then being made at the point of care. And, and, and the third platform is um, better systems. Um, so again, that's really sort of providing a framework for how we evidence again, the impact of the work that we do, the product and service that we create, 
to change on a longer term basis um, the health systems that operate globally. Um, so those three sort of core platforms give us the basis of evidencing the purpose in a very clear, very well articulated way. In fact, we've just published our third impact report that shows the progression um, and the global reach that we have. And for me, that creates the narrative to the business, which really is the self-sustaining model of the more that we can evidence the impact and outcome that we have, the better that we can create the demand for our products and services. That creates the natural growth in the business in terms of revenues and profits, which gives us the opportunity, something we've talked about in the past, which is, you know, there are no stories without numbers, there are no numbers without stories. And that's the simple relationship. The stories are all about our purpose and bringing our purpose to life. But we can evidence that through not only the impact that we have, better quality systems, better health systems, better evidence, but that links to the demand side from clients and customers, which links to our commercial agenda. So the more we develop the commercial agenda, the stronger our profits, the more we reinvest back into products and services, which has a greater impact on the business and the markets that we serve. Um, and that, to me, is the sort of the balance that sits between purpose and profit. Um, I don't focus on any one or the other. Um, it is the relationship of those two things. Stories and numbers, numbers and stories. I mean, they work really well. That is fascinating. You're essentially putting a, a framework and a metric system around your purpose. Yeah. Which many people see as sitting outside the remit of frameworks and metric systems. And, and that framing where you don't see them as separate or even requiring balance. And we've talked about, I know we've talked in the past, how careful and deliberate you have to be around the language you use for these things. Because most people think that purpose, um, by its very nature, doesn't allow you to talk about profit in a way that's complementary. And likewise, profit doesn't allow you to talk about purpose in a way that's complementary. So that reframing is not seeming seeing them as actually separate at all, no. but part of the same story. Absolutely. I think it's a really important framing yeah. that will, I think will resonate for many people listening to this podcast, but it, it's a very interesting shift in the mental model. So let's use that as the bridge into culture. Because the organisation you inherited, I think it's right to say, or the BMJ that you joined was an organisation that didn't see them as as integrated as you've just described when you joined. Yeah. So the cultural transformation that's happened or is happening at BMJ is is very relevant and and particularly interesting, particularly to this podcast. So talk a little bit about that. And I'd be interested in your reflections so far, and I know it's an ongoing story, on what you think the the core, the the key pivots or the, the key points around culture to create that shift and what have you found that's worked and what hasn't so as you've led the culture through that transformation? I think first of all, I think you're right. You know, when I joined there was a very tangible tension, I think, between sort of purpose and profit. As there are in many um, cause driven organizations. Indeed, and, and, and you sort of could see that quite distinctly actually between those that perhaps were slightly more sort of editorial orientated, um, the 
versus those that were sort of fundamentally on the commercial side uh, of the business. Um, I think for me, you know, it, it came down at the outset to engaging the leadership team in a discussion around purpose and profit and, and how those two things needed to sit more closely together and how we as a leadership team needed to talk to both aspects um, and, and, and that um, was the moment I think where we began to recognise that in order to be able to do that and do that well we had to begin to address some of the cultural challenges that we faced as an organisation. And, and how quickly or how easily did that shift happen in the thinking with the exec team? Because it's one thing having a conversation, it's not automatic that the mental infrastructure that they've no. been using for making decisions shifts. So, so how is that? No, I think it, I mean, it, it took time. Um, you know, I, I can remember actually sort of one of the very first things I did when joined it, you know, was, uh, you know, it was, it was a video you know, to staff. How, how do I reach staff at a time when we're all virtually, you know, working virtually? So it, I recorded a, a video, and, and in that video, I talked very openly about the purpose of the organisation. Um, but equally, I talked very purposefully about the need for us to think more commercially and to become more ambitious. So, you know, I, I began to set a tone, um, I, I suppose, around sort of what my expectations were around the business. Um, and particularly in that context of purpose and profit. So I've I've never engaged in the business and talked only about one or the other. I've always brought both uh, to bear. Um, I, I think the leadership team, you know, it, it probably took a good six to seven months of, of real reflection on what we were seeking to do as a leadership team and what we believed the opportunity was for the business. Um, and it was working with you and, and, and the team at, at Code and Culture 15 that began to create the framework from which we could better understand the culture of the organisation, that we could better understand what we as a leadership team felt the culture needed to be in order for us to be able to achieve some of the things that we wanted to achieve. Um, and it was bringing that team into an open conversation, um, bringing the team into a period of reflection and discussion, bringing that team into a period of learning and understanding, you know, what culture is and what culture isn't, um, understanding at quite a deep level what the culture was at BMJ and recognising perhaps very early on that we were a culture of cultures and much of that was being determined by particular sort of leadership philosophy, particular leadership behaviours, um, and to some extent how the organisation had been managed um, over a number of years. Um, and I think there are a couple of sort of moments in that journey where people literally went, oh, I see what you mean now. I see the differences. I see how that creates a particular set of behaviours that is not inherently wrong, but perhaps is not allowing us to achieve some of the things that we want to be able to achieve. Um, but we also had the opportunity of actually understanding culture at quite a granular level 
and in quite an evidence-led um, way. And that, I think, is important because we all know the challenge with culture is, and a lot of chief executives, a lot of boards will talk to it saying, it's a bit soft, it's a bit fluffy, can't really sort of put something around it and understand it and feel that it's tangible. Um, and the work we did, I think, gave us a very sound foundation for understanding what the culture was and why it was like that, what we would need to do in order to shift it to be one that was orientated around high performance, but captured still much of the quality and value that BMJ had built over time. It's exactly the same ethos that led you to put the impact framework around purpose. Yes. You need to be have a framework and be explicit and measure culture. Yeah. And it's that joining of the apparently qualitative into the quantitative world and seeing it as, as not contradictory yes. in any way. Fascinating. And, and I think that comment around cultural cultures will be a will be something that a lot of organizations mm. resonate with. Mostly because prior to taking a deliberate and quantified approach to culture. Culture exists as a product of behaviours of local managers, yes. which if it's not consistent, you end up with this sort of um, fragmented yeah. uh, and, and highly heterogeneous type of organisations, which of course is very difficult to change because yeah. it's not one thing. Um, one of the questions we're asking all of our guests on this podcast, and I'd like to ask the same one for you, is if you think about BMJ and the culture within BMJ, through the metaphor of an animal or a group of animals. Anything. It doesn't have to be in a mammal, but in the natural world. What would the collective group of animals be to best exemplify BMJ? Well, I think probably my reflection would be one that there isn't necessarily any one species. I, I think we are an organisation made up of, of many different species. I referenced earlier that culture of culture. Yes. Um, and, and perhaps if I can think of, you know, that that movie Ice Age, where you sort of see, you know, all these different sort of uh, groups of animals coming to the watering hole, um, and, and in most respects, perhaps the watering hole is purpose, um, and, and, and that is perhaps where we see this coalescing. Of different sort of different animals, different groups of animals, different species of animals um, coming together to share in a common purpose. Um, and nothing bad happens at the walking hole um, because the purpose is the thing that brings everyone together. Um, and that perhaps is the way in which I would think about the organisation. You know, an ability for it to acknowledge and recognise that different animals can coexist, um, whether you think they would naturally do so or not but they exist because they're there to share a common purpose. What a beautiful metaphor. Um, very, very imaginative. Which links very nicely to the point I want to go on to now, which is the personal role of the CEO. And obviously this is closely entwined with your own personal leadership journey. It's something I see many CEOs wrestling with which is what's my role in this. I've been taught all my career to delegate, but this feels like something perhaps I shouldn't delegate. And how do I do so without disempowering others? There's a lot of contradictions in the CEO's role in culture. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what you've learned and what you're learning around your role as the CEO um, and where you need to be personally involved, where perhaps you don't. Um, What have you learned along the way in terms of how a CEO needs to 
think about shaping an organization's culture? Yeah, um, I, I sometimes sort of think, you know, my job title of Chief Executive Officer is, is wrong. Um, you know, I, I think perhaps it should be more Chief Cultural Officer. Um, you know, fundamentally, you know, I think my job is to create the environment for our leaders and all of our employees to be able to experience, um, understand, um, amplify, um, and engage in the culture of the organisation. Um, and I have to set that tone. You know, I have to set that context for what that culture needs to, to be. Um, and then make sure it comes to life in the organisation. Um, and for it to come to life in almost everything that we do. So, you know, we, we, we've framed four anchor sort of characteristics, purposeful, ambitious, collaborative and energetic. Um, and, and my role fundamentally is to ensure that that is how we live, behave, how we engage with each other, how we bring that to bear on how we think about our products, our markets, our customers, um, and, and how we create an environment for our people to thrive. Um, so culture is something that I think about every day. Um, you know, I think hard about how we create the right cultural context for meetings at Harvey. So, you know, we might be talking about budgets, we might be talking about a particular issue that perhaps we're having to wrestle with that's not going well. The important thing is we always put a cultural context around that. Um, and that, to me, is the most important thing that I can do. Um, I have great talented people working with me and for me, and my job is to create the time and space for them to do their jobs very, very well. Um, but mine is to make sure that everybody who comes into the MJ has an experience that is positive, it is rewarding, it is um, growth-enabling. Um, and that is the most important thing I can do. And I think it's the most important job any chief executive officer has. And it's the thing that ultimately defines the legacy that you leave. I think. Um, and we don't often think about legacies in the context of culture. I think a lot of chief execs, you know, that I have met and have known and have read about and observed will always talk about what growth they've achieved, you know, what shareholder value they've created. Very few of them talk about the legacy of the culture that they are seeking to leave or have left. Which is ironic, of course, because financial performance tends to be quite fleeting. Yes. Um, yet culture tends to be much more enduring. Indeed. Which, which there, there lies the army. You mentioned this role that you see yourself having as being one that's responsible for ultimately creating headspace for others. Mm. I hear that a lot. It can be a bit counterintuitive for an industrious CEO or any leader really looking to make a mark, prove that the promotion decision to put them in the role has been a good one. Um, it, that, that role can often not feel intuitive or, or can sometimes take second place to things that are more urgent and, and um, on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So can you talk a little bit about how your thinking has evolved as a CEO? Because you, as you said, you've had leadership roles in organisations over the last 10, 15 years, senior leadership roles. And I know that that's always a process of learning and, and, uh, and developing understanding. I'd be interested to hear how you've reached the point that you're at now and what have been the main turning points for you. Yeah, I think... Um... I can remember sort of the first time coming into a role as, as a chief executive, um, and if I'm honest, not really fully understanding the responsibility that I was then taking on. This is um, my point. That's where most starts. Absolutely, yes. um, and and you know you become rather sort of myopically focused on you know, delivering the top line and bottom line, um, and being seen to be making all the right decisions, um, and being seen to be acting with very clear purpose and intent. Um, and, and I think, you know, often ending up potentially sort of contradicting yourself and tripping over yourself in some of those things that you try to do. Um, and it's that recognition that often is one that it's the time when perhaps you're least capable of the job that you've been asked to do. The promotion power. The promotion power, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, over my sort of years as a chief exec, I, I've, I've recognize the need to be much more sort of balanced um, and, and reflective um, and, and certainly not trying to sort of necessarily sort of exercise that right of I am the chief executive, I'm the senior most, you know, the senior person in the organization, it is my decision that counts. You know, I really try very hard today. And I don't always get it right, you know, I think mean, that's the important thing to recognize as well, is that most important is to set the context for what it is you want the organisation to achieve. Um, and, and for me, that context is around both purpose um, and also the growth and commercial success of the business. Um, and I want to sort of give that space to my leadership team to be able to make their own decisions in order to achieve that context that we've set. Um, so that's probably been the biggest learning for me over the years. Um, you know, I'm certainly, in many respects, the person least qualified to make some of the decisions that we have to make. My job is to make sure that they feel safe and secure in making the decisions that they make, um, knowing that I have their back, um, but most importantly, ensuring that those decisions are being set in the context of what it is we're trying to seek as an organisation. Um, and I have the real benefit of having a clarity of purpose. You know, I can't fault my organisation when we strive to do things and we may fall short. When what we strive to do is improve healthy outcomes. Mm. That is the driving force of what we seek to do. Um, and it's creating that context for people to operate in. Everything we do is designed to improve the health outcome. And as long as we're working hard to achieve that goal, then we'll be successful. Um, and it's helping them understand that objective in the cultural context of the set of being purposeful, ambitious, collaborative, and energetic. Um, and making that real to people. And that brings me back to stories and numbers, because that gives them the space to be able to work and work comfortably in their needs. That idea that the realisation 
that your role is one of context and purpose mm. and that you're the least qualified person in most instances to make a decision is the point at which you probably become an effective CEO. Yeah. Um, but as often as you say, not the point at which intuitively you start the journey. Mm. Uh, it's a really quite central point. And I went, I think we need to let that sit because that's quite a big idea. I like when you land on quite big ideas. So final question, and I'm reflecting a little bit that this, this is a bit of a desert island discs moment. <laughs> but if you were to articulate your personal leadership journey in a song, which is the second question we like to ask all of our guests, what would that song be and why? Uh, I think very simply that would be um, Bruce Springsteen Born to Run. Um, Springsteen has been the soundtrack to my life. Um, but Born to Run, I think, is this sense of restlessness, this sense of energy, this sense of embracing dreams and chasing them. Um, and that has probably been true both in terms of life choices I've made, but also fundamentally how I like to think about the business. You know, I like a sense of restlessness, a sense of constantly improving, a, a sense of there is a bigger opportunity for us and let's go pursue that. So, um, so born to run. Very good. Uh, I think we'll finish it there. That's, uh, that's a lovely point to finish. Chris, thank you. Fascinating hearing your reflections. Some really big messages in there. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing it. And hopefully the listeners can find it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture Decoded podcast. I hope you found the conversation interesting and useful. To hear more podcasts in the series and to stay up to date, please do subscribe to Culture Decoded on whatever podcast platform you use. And tell your friends, we're on a mission to get the word out as widely as possible. Thank you.